It's great to be together to worship our good God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians, found in the latter parts of your Bible there in the New Testament, letter of Paul to the Christians in the region of Ephesus. We're in chapter 4, and today we will be focusing in our study of verses 4 through 6. There's blank sermon notes, uh, pages in the back of the room, pens there for you to use and take home uh, for your ongoing study of God's Word, if you like. After calling the church to keep the unity that we have been bought to be part of, as Paul focused on in verse 1 through 3, Paul now delves into the nature or the grounds of our unity in a very important passage of Scripture, our passage of study today, verse 4 through 6. Look at it with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6 says, "There, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is such an important passage for every Christian to understand and to treasure what it means to be one in Christ. See Paul continuing to highlight the unity we have in Christ, and why that unity is so unique and important to us. He starts by saying there is one body. We who are the church are one. We are a united group, a family, a body of Christ. There are not many churches. There are not many people of God. There is one body of believers. We must see that God does something very supernatural when He saves us and binds us together as one. We who are many and diverse are one in Christ. This is like the supernatural bond that God creates when two people, when a man and woman, covenant together in holy marriage. Two become one. They're still individual people, separate people, but they are one in marriage. A bond in the work of the Holy God that is wonderfully unique. And we experience this in in this kind of way, in our oneness, we who are in Christ. God's sovereign appointment to bind us together as one in Christ. Understand with me that this unity in the church is not just union. Union means affiliation with others, but no common core bond that makes us truly one. Just as you can attend the same church or live in the same town, and therefore you have some kind of affiliation with each other, it doesn't mean that you are truly united, as Paul is emphasizing, we the church are in Christ. Affiliation or coalition can be helpful, but it's not unity in the deepest sense of what God has 
given us, we who are blood-bought children of God. Also, our unity as the church is not unanimity. Unanimity means we have complete agreement across the board. We can come together and agree. The unity, the oneness that Paul is highlighting here, that we are one body, is not just agreement. Now I say just there because it's deeper than that. It is that. There is agreement. Paul emphasizes this in his other letters, like his letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2.5. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord as of one mind. He says this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There should be a true effort and practice by us who are one in Christ to be united with the same mind. But the point Paul is making here is that unanimity or just simply agreement is not enough. That we can get together and agree on something but still not have the unity that we have in Christ. So it's more than unanimity. That The unity he's speaking of here is also not uniformity. Uniformity efforts to make us all look or act the same. To be uniform. That's not the aim of what Christ has in mind here either. People or churches who stress, overly stress uniformity, end up being too prescriptive, especially when it comes to Christian liberties, where Scripture is clear to give us freedom to, to be different and diverse. What we wear, or what we eat, or what team we root for. The Scriptures teach us that we are to have true unity in Christ-likeness. But at the same time, recognize that we are diverse. We have diverse gifts, diverse experiences, and there's a freedom in Christ to have a variance of preferences or practices for that which God does not make clear or didactic in Scripture. Where God's been clear to say, believe this or do this or don't do this, we are to obey Him. We are to agree on that. But where there's liberty, there will be diversity. And we see this diversity. When, when Paul says that we are one body, he, he emphasizes another layer of this in his letter to the Romans, Romans 12, 4-5. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. The elbow does not have the same function or purpose as the eyelid. They're both an important part of the body and both a part of the body. United. We too, there's a diversity among us. But see, see Paul's emphasis, we're members of one another. The illustration here is important. We need each other. It's God's design that we would do this. I have found myself over 20 plus years of pastoral ministry to emphasize to, to beloved brothers and sisters when they're kind of getting off on their own and they're kind of getting into their own head or, or, or they're, they're 
circling up with people. They kind of have an idea of what to do. And they're slowly kind of removing themselves from the body of Christ. From the blessing of the body. From the blessing of shepherds to lead the sheep. And they're making decisions, just declaring. And they're, it's like they're, they're missing out on what God's purchased them into. It's, it's like I don't, don't want that part. And we aren't to do that. We need each other. We need to live that out. We need to be united and walk together, even in our diversity. This means you can't discount each other or put each other down or alienate others because maybe their skills or their thoughts or their feelings are a little different than yours. The next time you're feeling frustrated with the variance of opinion or practice of a brother or sister in Christ, remember to value and celebrate the diverse but beautiful unity that we are in the body of Christ by God's perfect design. I love the diversity of our church. We are a diverse church in our life experiences and the things that many of you have been through or seen or overcome. We're diverse in our look. We're diverse in our age uh, with many young ones and many who are very seasoned in life. We have faithful members, long-standing members in our church in their 90s. Praise God. It's a lot of life. People have been members of our church for 60, 70 years. It's a lot of life. And, and so there's wonderful diversity in that, in the economy of, of our age and uh, in our ethnicity. There's wonderful diversity in different ethnic groups that are represented in, in our body. Uh, in our skill set, in our giftedness, there's, there's a, a unique and wonderful mix uh, and, and, and diversity among us. And I, and I really could go on and on. I, I love the diversity of our church. I pray it continues to be so by God's holy appointment and not by anything superficial that we might do to create that. According to the, to the world, we're not meant to be as unified as we are because of our diversity. But look at the power of God to unite us together, to bind us together this is exactly what our testimony is meant to do. A oneness that we have with God that, that is not like anything else. Anything else the world knows. And so it's unity with Christ that we get to testify of and, and get a, show a connection and, and a love for each other and a commitment to each other that, that surpasses our circumstances or even our feelings. We cannot settle, church, for fleshly unity or feelings alone, because those will go up and down. In that, then we paint to the world a superficial picture of unity. No, we must deeply abide in Christ and be transformed, reborn, and, and moved by God so that the sign, the, the testimony of our unity is doing what He intends it to do for our days. True unity or oneness refers to the oneness of heart that we have, the oneness of a unified life in God. This means that we cannot be united or have true oneness without God. The body cannot function without the head. The bride is not a bride without the groom. The, the, the branches are not alive without being connected to the vine. We must be together, united. We are only united in Christ. 
We only love because of His love. We, are, we only obey because of the Holy Spirit's work to bring conviction and understanding of the Word and desire to obey. We only serve each other because of the humility and power of Christ at work in us to serve each other. See how desperate we are for God that we're united in Him. That's the, the key of our unity. The body doesn't function without the head. And can we be oh so mindful of fighting the fleshly temptations that often can create disunity because of opinion, because of superficial props that we put up, where you might look around and go, is there really someone here like me? And we start to kind of separate ourselves. We kind of, we kind of start to say, well, maybe this isn't, because I'm really looking not just for unity in Christ, I'm looking for unity in these other areas of uniformity or, or, or union or unanimity. No, no, no. It's our unity in Christ that makes us one. And it's our diversity that makes us work. If we're all right elbows, our body's going to be very ineffective. And so fight that fleshly desire to say, I just want some people like me. And find your joy in the fact that you are a part of the body of Christ. And that it's in your diversity and the uniqueness of who you are and where you're at in life that you bring something to the table to benefit this body. Notice what Paul's saying. He says, there is one body. This is a declaration. This is a proclamation. He's declaring the divine work of God to make what is very diverse one in Christ. Paul's not saying, let us be united. He's saying, in Christ we are united. He drives this home again and again in all of his writings. Romans 12.5 So though we many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. When you allow a grudge to fester, when, when you allow yourselves to throw a pity party and kind of be distant, you, you, are, you are lying about what it means to be in the body. You're letting something fester in your feelings and sinful feelings and emotions that needs to be put to death. You need to speak this truth back into your mind and heart. I am one with these people in Christ now and forevermore. Let me do everything to celebrate and testify that and let me put away anything that might cause discord or separation in that testimony. 1 Corinthians 12.27 Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So I ask you this morning to be honest in your evaluation. Let the Lord do His work mightily. Do you rightly value the united body of Christ? Do you do this even when others look different, act different than you? Do you apply this to other churches or other gatherings of brothers and sisters in Christ that it might be in other parts of the world or and, and their flavor and their feel and some of the things they do is a little different and it's not like what you like. Do you value them less? They are a true and complete part of the united body of Christ. Let us hold that high. Let us understand that rightly and let us live that out. 
in our testimony, church. We need to see and celebrate that when we are biblically united in Christ, we are one, despite secondary differences or practice. We need to see it rightly because our unity is a huge part of our God-ordained testimony. Let's look at the next emphasis Paul has for us this morning. He says, there is one body and one spirit. Understand first, this is not talking about spirit like the spirit among us is generally this kind of equity, like a similarity of heart. No, this is in reference to the Holy Spirit. Paul's emphasis here is that the Holy Spirit is the spiritual life of the body of Christ. There is no body of Christ where the Spirit is not on board, where the Spirit is not active and moving. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of the true members of the body of Christ. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. But to be clear, He's not a part of Christ or a part of the Father. He is a distinct person within the Holy Godhead. Our statement of faith as a church simply states it this way. God exists eternally as one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Church, we are completely desperate for the work and power of the Holy Spirit, or there is not spiritual life in us. And if not that, then we're not a part of the church. Look for a moment at the other places Paul emphasizes this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is essential for our true unity. Romans 8, 9-11, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. There it is. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit is life. Praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit to unite us as one. If you remember, Paul spoke of the necessity of being sealed in the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13. In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms that we are authentically and fully true children of God. Romans 8, 16 and 17, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms that we are marked as belonging to God. The fruit of the Spirit 
is a visual marker that displays that the Spirit of God dwells in someone. The fruit of the Spirit shows that we're part of the redeemed, that we are a child of God. Lastly, can we understand rightly, the Spirit binds us together with the Word, with the Spirit's Word. Catch this. We don't claim authority or position against someone or against each other that's not in line with the Spirit. We don't say, I'm in the Spirit, but what I'm doing or saying is contrary to the Word of God. Why? Because this is the Spirit's Word. And so the Spirit's Word will be in alignment with the work of the Spirit. The unity we have is bound in the work of the Spirit and the clarity of the Spirit's book, a precious gift of God to us. The Holy Scriptures, a guide to keep us to walk in obedience and truth and unity. And so we don't claim the Spirit, claim to have the Spirit, but we're walking in disobedience to the Word. No, they go together because this is the Spirit's Word. Look next at what Paul says. He says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Think about this united reality that we share. It's marvelous. Think about the promises of God and the eternity that He has secured for us. What is hope? Hope is a feeling of expectation or desire for a certain thing to happen. What are you hoping for? But hope also can be in something or someone, especially when that's going to help you or deliver you. So we can hope, put our hope in something or someone. We can hope for something. We can put our hope in something. There's two layers to it. We who are called and saved into the united body of Christ have a true and lasting hope in Jesus Christ alone. Our hope is not in Jesus plus our ability to do the right thing. It's not in anything else. It's in Jesus alone. And our hope is for eternity with God. There is no greater hope than for eternity with God. Romans 5.2 We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The ultimate hope of the human heart is not for forgiveness or justification or heaven or freedom from disease. The ultimate hope of every heart, the biggest thing one could hope for is to experience the glory of God. The greatest thing you will ever see or savor is the glory of God. Everything else is a distant second. But because of the fall, because of sin, our first hope is for salvation. It's for redemption. But our ultimate hope is for our participation in the glory of God. I love how Peter really drives this home. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
Not a dead hope, not a fleeting hope, a living hope. Why is it living? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus conquered death on our behalf. Because He's living. Our hope is living. Amen? Amen. To an inheritance that is imperishable. Here's the two. What we're hoping for. Uh, An inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Kept in heaven for you. How secure is it? It's kept in heaven for you by God's power. It's ultimately secure. No one's busting through God to get to your inheritance. Amen? It is being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is our hope. Our living hope. Praise be to God. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is for eternity with God. And this is a powerful thread that weaves through all Christians, true Christians, It empowers us in our lives in the here and now. Because that living hope carries us. Christian, have you allowed your hope to move off of the Word of God, off of the promises of God, and the testimony of God, and onto your circumstances, onto your hardships, onto your fallouts and your worries? Listen carefully. We who are in Christ, hope not in the temporary. We hope in Christ. We hope not for this life, but for the life that is everlasting with God. This is a united reality we have in Christ. That we see the preciousness of our hope in God. I'm thankful for Pastor Matt's emphasis of this this morning and his preparation for the Lord's Supper, church. Because the liars and the deceivers and the brokenness of this world are coming at you day and night from every direction to get you to worry, to get you to fret, to get you to follow man-made agendas. Your hope is in Christ. Your life is in Christ. Your hope is in eternity. It's not now. What does Paul say? You can have the body. You can have this life. You have it all. I have Christ. And so the days He ordains for me to live, I live for Him. I don't live in fear. I, don't, I live for Him. I trust in Him. Because He has me. See how this gives us real power to endure the hardships of this life. And even the reality of our inevitable death one day. It's this unavoidable statistic that one out of one people die. Just meditate on that for a second. It's like, you know, it's not like one out of four. No, no, we all one day, unless, you know, we're here at the end when Jesus comes to take us home, right? It, we're going to die. Our physically, our time's coming up. Scripture says it's better to be with the Lord. Right? That it'd be apart from, praise God, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, I don't short circuit the life God's entrusted to me. I live every day, even if in great pain, for his glory. But death is coming. For some of our children, they won't make it out of their youth. For some of our loved ones, they won't make it out of their young adult years. For some, you'll never know what it is to, to live 60, 70, 80 years. It's different for all of us. God God has that in His grip. We trust Him. He's the author of our days. 
But the hope we have, unitedly in Christ, it, it means this. As much as death is our enemy and a result of sin, we who belong to Christ don't fear it. As Christians, we actually can run up on death without fear because of hope. Because of real hope. We can have a dearly loved one who is a believer die unexpectedly. And even in the midst of genuine sorrow, there is unexplainable hope and peace. Amen? Because you know where they are. I'm getting chills. You you know what God has promised, what He has done. That is real hope for those who are in Christ. Those outside of Christ don't get that, nor should they. But we who are in Christ do. Let me just ask you, where have you found your hope? Where have you been putting your hope lately? Church, I want us to watch out for this with each other. I want us to be willing to say out loud, I'm struggling here. Can you help me? Can you reorient me? Because it's too easy to get our eyes off of Christ and to get them down in our circumstances. We need each other. Remember, He's blessed us to be united to each other. You're not intended to do this life alone. And part of that doing life together means we need each other to help pull our eyes up off our circumstances and be reoriented to Christ. The hope we have together in Him. Times are hard. For some of you, it's really beginning to stack up lately in how you've had to battle sickness or isolation or economic struggle. But realize it is in times like this that our hope and our faith get to go to work the best. And so we who belong to Christ, we don't spend all of our days just wishing it all away. Maybe, if we're honest, you're guilty of this lately. What's coming out of your mouth more than anything is, I'm just done. Done with X, Y, or Z. Let's not have that be our testimony. Let's let our testimony be our testimony be about the hope we have in Christ for those around us who need to know that testimony. Let us fix our minds on that so that then however the long ordains for us to be wandering in the wilderness or however hardships playing out, we trust him. We walk by faith. These days belong to him. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You were called, church. What, what exactly is the call that our hope belongs to that he's emphasizing here? Well, remember what he just said in verse 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. We're called unto salvation. We're called unto life in the body, united together. That calling will have with it maturity, sanctification. God has called us out of the darkness and into the light, the light of Christ. But not just so we can sit back and ride it out. No, so we can walk in hope, so we can testify hope. A united expectation we have that's grounded in God. There needs to be a unity among the church that is one of hope. That we have in Christ. 
So that when a broken world comes at us with COVID-19, with sinful injustice, with economic demise, with social isolation, and on and on, we exercise our hope in Christ together. We work together to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to do this for each other. And can I just say, if for whatever reason you're going, man, I really wish someone would call me. I wish someone would do that for me. Can I just say, who have you done that for? Can, can that start with you, please? Because it's all going to go a lot of nowhere if you're all just waiting for someone else to call you. How about we be part of the moving forward as to what the Lord's called us to? Pick up the phone and call someone else. How can I be praying for you, brother? How can I be encouraging you? I'm a part of this body. I want to... I want to stoke the fire of your hope in Christ today. Oh yeah, phones are ringing this week. Let's go. (laughs) Let's hope in God. We have that. Let's live it out. And with it, we swat away the things that want to steal our joy and our resolve in Christ. Paul says next that we have one Lord. The word Lord is mainly a reference to one with authority over another. Paul's declaring that we are under, and even more so, we belong to another. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of all because He reigns over all, because He is the creator and the sustainer of all creation. But more so, He is Lord of His people because He paid a ransom for their life with His blood. The latter is Paul's emphasis here. He's talking to the saints about our unity in Christ. So he's not talking about how Jesus is Lord of all. He's talking about how he's Lord of the body of Christ. One of the wonderful and beautiful realities we experience in Christ is that we belong to Christ and are led by Him in all things. Watch this. We've got to do business with this this morning, church. You cannot have the kind of unity Paul is saying we have if not under Christ's leadership. It is not enough to just attend church or do a little life with the church. No. True Christians have died to themselves and now live under the authority of Christ. They belong to Christ. To want Him to be your Savior but not your Lord, is to not want Jesus, but only what He can give you. That's idolatry in the end. You must see the gross error of that. For the person who's raised just enough in the church to think I've said a prayer, I've done just enough, or or maybe you've been around a few, three or four, eight decades, and and you're like, I've kind of done enough, and, and I've got this. I don't know. Is He Lord of your life? Are you doing what He commands you to do daily until He's done with you and brings you home? While it is true that we are saved because of His blood, we must see that we are bought with His blood. Watch that. Purchased. Ransomed. Our ransom from slavery to sin means we are bought by Christ so that we can be slaves of Christ. Like, whoa, Pastor, man, that's, that's kind of weird that we're slaves of Jesus. Like, is that really what the Bible says? Yeah, actually way more than just about any other title we're given. I'll get to that in a moment. 
Christian, you've got to see this rightly. You do not belong to yourself. Jesus bought you. You belong to Him. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things of silver or gold, we're not ransomed with that stuff, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb without blemish or spot. We worship the Lamb who was slain because with His blood He purchased our freedom. He purchased us into His family. Romans 14, 9, for, this, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The very nature of our being in the body of Christ is that He is our head. The body of Christ without a head is not a functioning body. It's a decapitated body. Lifeless body. We no longer are Lord of our own lives. We have died to self and we now live to Christ. Do you realize that when you believe in Jesus, you're not just believing about Him. That believe, that, that, ascent, that trust is just that. You're, you're, you're dying to yourself and you're living now to the Lordship of Christ for His glory. Paul says it so well in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. May it be true. May, it, may we have such good focus on that reality that it is our joy to live for our Master. In addition to the name Christian, the Bible gives a host of other names to, to define or title the followers of Jesus. Beloved, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the chosen, the church, disciples, the elect, friends, heirs, household of God, saints, sheep, sons of God, and on and on. These great titles that we love. All of these descriptions in their own unique way help us to see what it is to be a Christian. But the Bible uses one metaphor and or title more frequently than any of the ones I just listed. It's one you might not expect. But it's absolutely critical to understanding what it means to follow Jesus. And that is the word slave. Many of our English translations that you read, where you see the word servant is really the word slave. Doulos is the Greek word there. And whatever softening the translators are doing, they're, they're kind of hurting the way we see the, the, the pack of power, the potency of what it means to be a slave of Christ. Time and time again throughout the pages of Scripture, believers are referred to as slaves of God, slaves of Christ. Outsiders would call them Christians, and, and, and the New Testament believers would often internally more prefer the title that they're the Lord's slaves. We look, need to look no further to see this than most of the openings of Paul's letters where he's joyful to refer to himself as a slave to Christ. The New Testament understanding of a believer's relationship to Christ is that He is our master. He is our owner. And we are His possession. Can I just say there is no place you would rather be if you understand what it is to belong to Christ. See, in your flesh, modern day thinking says, I don't want to belong to anybody. We love the idea of freedom, of autonomy. 
But in spiritual reality, you are a slave. No one is not a slave. You are a slave to sin and death, or you are a slave to Christ. There is no other biblical reality. The freedom Jesus purchases us is from the eternal consequences of our sin, i.e. hell. That's a great freedom from the power of sin. Now the power of the Holy Spirit's on board. But we are never not a slave. And it is our joy to be a slave to Christ. Pastor John MacArthur says it well. True Christianity is not about adding Jesus to my life. Instead, it is about devoting myself completely to Him, submitting wholly to His will, and seeking to please Him above all else. It demands dying to self and following the Master, no matter what the cost. In other words, to be a Christian is to be Christ's slave. John MacArthur's book, titled Slave, is a great read if you're looking to dig in more on this topic. Romans 1.6 says we are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.19-20, Paul reminds the Corinthian church, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. This means, what does this mean? This means practically if you belong to Christ, your money is not your money, it's Jesus' money. Your days are not your days, they're Jesus' days. Your life is not your life. Your, your kids are not your kids. They're Jesus' kids. It, it belongs to Him. You have a master. And when we really begin to dive into it and understand what it is to serve Jesus as master, we see it's not a bad thing. It's an amazing thing. We begin to understand the amazing, undeniable, priv, undeniable privilege it is to be His And it begins to change how we manage our time, manage our money, manage our treasures, our families, and everything else. We begin to understand it is a great joy to be a slave of Christ and to serve our Master. Praise God that we're not saved and set free to roam, but we are called to serve our Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ. I love Jesus' simple words. He the shepherd, we the sheep. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There is no like, yeah, I'm with Jesus, but I ain't following Him. No, no. If you're with Jesus, you belong to Him. You obey Him. You are what it says you are. You do what it says you are to do. And it's your utter joy to do so. Look at what Paul says next in verse 5. He says there's one faith. Understand the faith he's speaking about here is not creeds or details of doctrine. It is a specific reference to the faith every person who God ordains is saved. It's saving faith. I've already taught on faith extensively, so I'm not going to get into it this morning. Even in our sermon series through Ephesians, there's whole sermons devoted to this topic that you can go back and listen to. I do want to take a moment just to highlight um, the, the clarity of what this means for our unity. Saving faith is defined in our Word of Truth Catechism this way. Rather than one trusting in their own assumed worth, works, or ability, a person repents and believes that Jesus is God, trusts in Jesus' sinless life of perfect obedience, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross in his or her place, And Jesus rising from the dead to claim salvation or victory for him or her. 
Saving faith is produced in the elect by God and is always accompanied by progressive sanctification and ongoing repentance from sin. Understand, church, that faith is not blind and faith is not a feeling. You've likely encountered, like I have, people who claim to be Christians, but when you talk to them more, what they're really saying is their so-called faith is more of a mental assent. It's like a gut feeling they described to you that they're good with God. I don't know. Saving faith is not based on a person's feeling or attitudes. If your faith is based on those things, no wonder it feels like a roller coaster. No, no, no. True faith is wholly based on God, who is perfect and complete and enduring in every way. God is great and stable and complete and without wavering. Faith doesn't create what we hope for. That would be a mere mind game. It is truly trusting in the promises of God. It is trusting. It is putting your life on the, on the completed work of Jesus. It's, it's very focused in God, in Christ. It is our faith in the one true God that unites the true church. Which is why those who claim God, or even Jesus in unbiblical forms or functions, are not saved. They're not part of the United Church. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other groups teach a different Christ. It's something else altogether. It's not the one true God. Faith in something else is not saving faith. Don't be confounded by the idea that they're using the name Jesus, and so therefore it works. No, no. It's faith in the one true God. In, in the true Christ, in His perfect work, completed work, victorious work on our behalf. Paul says in the last part of verse 5 that there's one baptism. The old marker of people of God under the old covenant was circumcision. But this has been put away and replaced by a new marker instituted by our Lord. An outward sign, testimony, believer's baptism. What is baptism? The Word of Truth Catechism says it this way. Baptism is a holy, new covenant ordinance from our Lord Jesus, whereby a professing believer in Jesus Christ testifies their faith in Christ alone for salvation and their union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by a public testimony of immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is to be done once and in no way contributes to one's salvation. All those who trust in Christ are to be baptized to declare on the outside what has happened on the inside. It is in this ceremony and testimony that the church gets to hear the testimony, witness it through the symbolism of baptism, and welcome that Christian to the family of God. We, we love, we, we trust that Jesus is doing this work in you, that you're an adopted part of this family, our family. This is a wonderful gift and a vitally important practice in the church that every believer should do in obedience to God's Word, as a way to be publicly identified as part of the family of God. See how that is good for our unity. Also recognize 
and realize that believer's baptism is universal. It's not congregation to congregation. It's, it's, so we don't make believers be baptized when committing to be a member of our church. If already baptized rightly and biblically, they are, they are a part of the universal church and the declaration of their salvation has been made. That symbolism has happened. That testimony has happened. And we embrace that and receive that in, the, in our unity with them in Christ. Last but surely not least, at, to the slightest, look at verse 6 with me. Such a powerful verse. Paul continues that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Who is God? God is the Almighty Creator, Sustainer, and Ruler of everything. He is perfect. And He is the standard by which all things are measured. Think about those truths. Ezra says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Nehemiah 9.6 Romans 11.36 tells us that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. Amen. Who is God? He is the cause and the reason that everything exists. And by His unfathomable grace and wisdom, He's decided to ride us and our mountains and this universe into His great plan over which He forever will reign. Church, there is one God. There is only one God. One true God. Now while God is Father over all things, Paul's reference to Him as Father here is not that not in reference to that, but is in reference to the uniqueness of, again, Paul's audience is writing to, to believers and our unity, that He is our Father. That He has adopted us into His family. To be a member of a family, you must be born into it or adopted into it. What's cool about Christians is we are both. New birth happens in the power of the Holy Spirit, and God claims His adoption of us. Let us never forget that we all were born into spiritual slavery, dead in sin, committed to serve our father, the devil. Therefore, it is truly good news when we are told that we have been reborn by the Spirit, adopted by our eternal Father at the high cost of the blood of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We who are redeemed and adopted into God's family, God is called he's calls he calls his family we're adopted we're his children this is legal this is formal think about that the god of the universe the ruler of all things the great i am is our father if we belong to christ church these truths must transform our thinking our mood our motivation for the days he gives us on earth don't miss the potency of this reality the set-apartness of God so that we can fully appreciate the fact that He's drawn us near as true kids of grace. This is what Paul is saying again and again. He wants us to understand. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8.16 This is a formal thing. It's not like, hey, hey, Jimmy is like a son to me. No, no, no. We are His sons and His daughters. 
John 1, 12 and 13, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who receives Jesus? Who believes in Jesus' name? Who does, Jesus, who does God give the right to become children of God? Those whom He ordains. Those whom He chooses. He gives them new birth. This brings us to what Paul is saying here at the end of verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Does the all here mean all of creation or all of the church? Context is everything church. Paul's writing to the believers about our unity in Christ, that he is our Father. The context of what Paul is speaking here is referencing the church, the united ones. God is Father of all of the church. He is over us all, through us all, and in us all. Praise be to God. Amen? There is one God. That means there's only one way to be saved. Jesus said it clearly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way to be saved. This is good news. Why? Because there's a way to God. We all deserve His wrath. We, we deserve eternal death because of our sin. But He has made a way. The fact that He's made a way is huge news, good news. That the holy and perfect God willed to save an undeserving people, to know and enjoy Him forever. The fact that God has made a way is not dependent on our good works That's also huge news. Praise God that it's up to God and not up to me. There's one way. Jesus paid that way. This means anyone God wills to be saved will be saved. In this, the Gospel of Jesus is unbelievably inclusive. We consider who He includes into salvation, into His family because of the blood of Jesus. And in that, don't ever stop praying for your unbelieving friends and family. Don't ever think that the sin that you've done in this life is too big for Jesus' blood to cover. He is able more than able. But we must also see that there's only one way. And in this we see the exclusivity of the Gospel. In that there are not many ways to God, there is one way to God. There are not many valid religions or belief systems, but one by which you can be saved. Jesus alone. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I pray that if you've not repented of sin and not trusted your life to Jesus alone, that you would. Jesus alone is salvation and the only way to God. No man or woman who denied Jesus is in a better place after they died. That's wishful thinking. That's contrary to Holy Scripture. We are desperate for a Savior. We are desperate for God to save us. Jesus is the only way. See with me that Paul is emphasizing in today's passage the unity that we have in Christ, in the Spirit, and in the Father. Don't miss the potency of what Paul is saying to the church in this. To be filled with God... To be pervaded by His presence, controlled by Him, protected by Him, to be known and loved by Him is the climax. It is the summit of all created excellence, blessedness, and glory. There is one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. 
This is the testimony of the Holy Trinity. This is the testimony of Holy Scripture that points us to the Holy Trinity. See with me today, the the unity of the church is found on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is cause for high exaltation and worship this morning as we digest this good word and the oneness we have in the triune God. As we prepare to worship that triune God this morning, consider the words of John as he's given vision of the throne room of God. I want to ask you to close your eyes and consider these words with me as I go to prayer and as we move to a time of worship to conclude our morning. Revelation chapter 4, 8 through 11, John testifies this, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Father, we thank You for Your will to bring us to this place today to study Your Holy Word. That Your Word is written in in a language that we can understand. We can study it. We can meditate on these truths. We thank You for the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in each one to to understand, to to be convicted unto action and repentance. That, that You are stirring our affections and our belief in such a way that it overflows into worship of You. Praise for Your grace and Your mercy and Your love and Your power in our lives. Lord, that the unity of the body would be a serious thing. Paul's efforting that You've ordained for Paul to write that we would understand this, that we would embrace it and live it. It wouldn't just be a truth that's over here on the side. It would be central to our thinking, to our actions, to our testimony. Lord, continue to shape us with Your Word. Continue to unveil blind eyes to to seeing and savoring You. That we would worship You and celebrate You with all that we are. For You are glorious and worthy to be praised. Hear us now as we do that in Jesus' name.